This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. So uh, we're looking at, um, I want to look at this passage uh, in Genesis 25, and um, I preached on that in the fall, so some of you heard this, but uh, I tried to change up a few things. Um, this, is a, this is a story of one of the founding fathers of the faith, that we call them the patriarchs sometimes. That's Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. There's four of the patriarchs. And this is a story of Jacob, and it's kind of our introduction to Jacob. And Jacob, uh, I used to think that the patriarchs uh, were heroes, and that basically most of the stories of the Bible were about people who were moral heroes. I was always surprised to find these character flaws in them, but it's really a story of nothing but people with character flaws who are from dysfunctional families, as we are all from. As we are all from. And uh, so I really appreciate the humanity of this story. Um, I'm going to read it now. And as I read it, just think about the family that is being described here by, I believe it's Moses who wrote Genesis. So um, when Moses was gathering these stories together, um, he wanted to include these details. The, the inspired Holy Spirit of God who told Moses to write this down, I wanted these details included. So think about your own life as I'm reading this in your family of origin. Um, this is the word of God, Genesis 25, 19 through 34. Uh, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Hedon Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in the womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
So, um, fascinating story about two brothers, about two parents, um, about this schemer named Jacob. And, um, you know, as I was saying, um, it's a very dysfunctional family. Um, it's a deeply broken system. Um, it's, uh, it's us. It's our lives. It's uh, digging down to who we are. And uh, it's surprising maybe to you that one of the heroes of the faith um, would be like this, that Jacob would come from this. But that is right at the heart of Christianity. It's not a religion of people who are uh, moral paragons. Uh, it's a religion of people who are really struggling and broken. Uh, as Jesus said, I did not come here to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, it is not those who are uh, well who are in need of a doctor, but those who are sick. He came to call the sick and not the well. So I want to look at the fact that, um, that Jacob needed redemption since he was in the womb, actually. All the way back to the womb, he's needed redemption. When this bitter rivalry began with his brother Esau, he grabbed his heel as he was coming out of the womb. So it started all the way back then. Uh, that's the first thing, is that this, this founder of the faith, Jacob, uh, the God of Jacob is often, he's also known as Israel, by the way. That's, that's the name that God changed him to. And so this is the, this is the one from whom Israel is named. Um, and then number two, that even though Jacob needs a lot of redemption, God is a great redeemer and redeems Jacob in this amazing um, way where he flips upside down all the conventions of the world, all the hierarchies, uh, all the stratifications that we create in the world, um, all the ways we do that at Wake Forest, uh, he flips it on his head. He says, no, 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 the, uh, the older is going to serve the younger in my kingdom. I'm not going to let the, the, the status quo stand. You know, I'm not going to let the empire have its way. I'm going to flip everything upside down. So those two things. Uh, Jacob's need of redemption. God is a great redeemer. So Jacob uh, clearly had a rough upbringing. I would not want to have been raised in this home. Um, I don't know what was going on with the parents, but uh, they did not communicate well, clearly. Um, they committed the number one parental sin, uh, which is favoritism. So if you, if you have a child, uh, verse 28, you do not want to be this description of your parenting, that Jacob loved Esau, but Rebekah loved, uh, Isaac loved Esau, but Jacob, but Rebekah loved Jacob. That's a, that's a very bad way to parent, for the father uh, to love one child and then the mother to prefer the other child uh, is, is a really, really bad idea. And it's not just favoritism. That's being shown here. It's superficial favoritism. Because if you look at verse 28, why did Isaac love Esau the most? It was simply because it says he ate of his game. So it's not even a profound reason. He ate the animals, the rabbits or the deer or whatever it was that Esau loved to hunt. Isaac loved the taste of Esau's game that he fought and, and killed. And so that's why he loves him. Incredibly superficial reason. Uh, meanwhile, Rebekah loves Jacob because he was a quiet man, in verse 27. Um, he was dwelling in tents, which was kind of like he was, um, he, he was hanging out more with the women. He was doing stuff that, that was more domestic uh, than Esau was the one out there with the guys hunting. So uh, that's why she loved um, Jacob and Isaac loved Esau. So it's a, it's a really bad family to come from. Um, Isaac would come back hunting with Esau. Two of them would be out for the day, you know, bringing back their bows and arrows with the, the dead animals slung across their shoulder. They'd be laughing, telling stories. Jacob would be waiting in the tent from a young age, you know, waiting to show his dad his little clay horse that he made or whatever it was that he constructed. He was probably more of a, an artsy type, 
Uh, and his dad, like, just brushes it off, blow, you know, blows it off. Who cares? You know, and, and like, slaps Esau on the back. Um, and you can imagine that Jacob just gives up trying to make his father like him, as have many of us. You know, we just, at some point, you're just like, he's not, he's going to prefer my sibling to me. And there's nothing I can do about that. And so at some point he gives up and the sadness becomes bitterness and the bitterness turns to resentment. And I think that a lot of us have felt uh, potentially in the position of Jacob, overlooked or neglected. Um, Sometimes you feel anger towards your brother or sister. and You don't know why it's there. Uh, To this day, I have a very strained, strange and strained relationship with one of my two brothers and uh, We try to meet all the time and it doesn't ever really get through to that core of whatever kind of sibling rivalry is there, but it's there. And it's really awful to be feeling like you're overlooked. Um, I was actually not the overlooked one in our family of three boys. Um, I was the favorite, which is not good either. You don't want to be the favorite child. That's not good. You don't want to be the golden child. Uh, It's not good to be overlooked and neglected. It's also not good to be the Esau. Uh, It did not work out well with Esau. To be spoiled and doted over and fawned over and never disciplined, as Esau was here, is very bad. It's very bad for Esau. You notice here this kind of triple manliness that you see with Esau. He's red, he's hairy, and he's a hunter. So he's this macho guy, like the rock or something like that. And this toxic masculinity that Esau carried with him was totally unchecked. It was was unchecked. It says in verse 29 that he came from the field and he was exhausted. And Jacob was cooking stew, which is, you see the contrast right there. He's coming from the field. He's exhausted. Jacob's watching the Food Network. You know, he's got his new recipe. Um, and Esau is so impulsive and entitled that in Hebrew, it literally says in verse 30, let me gulp some of this red stuff, this red stuff. Like even the way he talks is not very refined, like a caveman or something. Like, let me gulp some of this red stuff. You can just imagine him slobbering on his coat as he comes in. Uh, with his Bowie knife, you know, the bloody knife. And uh, in verse 32, it says, I'm about ready to die. And, you know, you're like, it's a day. You've been one day out hunting, and now you're saying you're ready to die. You know, that's how uh, driven by his desires he was. Uh, he, he, had, he had no ability uh, for delayed gratification. He was still living like an infant. But notice Jacob. I mean, as bad as that is, uh, Jacob's response is chilling in its calculation and premeditation. He says in these, you know, like three Hebrew words that are very short, choppy words, sell me your birthright now. Now, he had planned that speech. You know, he's been waiting for this moment for years, I believe, to steal that birthright. Because the firstborn was everything. It meant everything to be the firstborn. He had the birthright. So Jacob is waiting to steal. And he has planned every syllable, and he has been waiting for that just right moment when Esau is in this state. And he's got his favorite food already made. He knows what Esau likes. And a good brother would never have let, never have let his older brother sell him his birthright for stew. I mean, a good brother would would never have asked for it at all, much less let him do it. But in this case... You know, Esau is willing to give it up, which shows what a fool he was. He says, I am about to die, in verse 32, of what use is a birthright? And then the writer comments on the end uh, that Esau despised his birthright, in verse 34. 
In other words, he had almost no faith at all in the great dream of his granddad, Abraham. Abraham had told his son Isaac about the great promise that Israel would one day be like the stars in the sky and would bless the entire world. And that was the birthright. That was the inheritance of Israel. And now it says he despised it. That's a very strong word. That would be like, you know, my, my wedding ring here. If I, if I was um, just wanted to, you know, I was kind of out of money and I really wanted some food and I didn't have any money. And I was like, I'll just give you, I'll just give you my wedding ring for a drink. You know, that's how ridiculous it is that he would sell his birthright. It'd be like selling your child's educational fund um, for a risky investment. He despised his birthright. He never learned, Esau never learned to care about the family mission, about the, the whole point of the family. He didn't really care about the promise of blessing to the story of the kingdom that his dad would tell him. He thought he was here on earth to enjoy food and to win games and to best people. To one-up people. And the author of Genesis is saying, this is a messed up family. The parents are messed up. The children are messed up. It gives us permission to say, we're messed up. And so think about the way you communicate with your younger brother or older sister or whatever it is. You know, whoever it is. Maybe your only child. Could be your parents. Um, But, you know, why didn't Rebecca at some point confront Isaac about his favoritism? Probably her favoritism was generated by, clearly she saw her husband's favoritism towards Esau. Uh, So why didn't she confront Isaac and say, why don't you love Jacob? They were not talking very well. Um, Think about whether your parents have either overlooked you, neglected you, or spoiled you, or made you their favorite, made you their pet. You're the one who has to keep the family kind of going well. You know, you're the one who's got to be upbeat and chipper. it's pretty obvious this is a dark and painful story. And in the next story after this, if you want to read more about Genesis, um, it gets even worse because Jacob and mom are actively manipulating Esau and dad in the next story. Jacob dresses up like he's Esau, and he tries to get his blind dad to bless him instead of Esau. So that's how messed up it gets. He steals the birthright, the promised blessings to Abraham. Jacob steals him. But here's the good news in all this mess is that God inspires the story and he says to us, this is the family I'm choosing to save the world through. Like, that's such good news. Uh, that, that is incredibly encouraging. That No matter what your family is like, uh, God will bring incredible redemption and salvation through that system, that messed up system. And sometimes the worse the system, the more the beauty of the thing redeemed. Um, you know, this, this is almost like the worst brother of the worst family he could have chosen. And that's the one. He's like, I want that one. I want Jacob. Not Esau. I want Jacob. Because he is the schemer. He's the one I really need to get glory from absolutely altering and transforming his life story. Which is what God plans for every one of us. So, that's the first thing. We're all in need of redemption. But now, he, he takes the greatest parts, the worst parts of our story, and makes them the greatest parts of his redemption. He's a great redeemer. So where do you see the great redeemer? Well, in verse 22, you see that the children were struggling. And the word is in Hebrew, break, bruise, or crush. These two, she's pregnant with twins. She's been barren her whole life. Uh, She's been deeply distraught. Now she has a high-risk pregnancy with these two twins where it says they were breaking, bruising, and crushing. So there was something deeply wrong with this pregnancy 20 years of infertility and now this. And her pain is so severe that she cries out in desperation. 
And in Hebrew, it's like a fragment. Uh, Why is this happening to me? It's a prayer. It literally just says, if so, why me? If this, then why me? So this is her greatest moment of tragedy, when she thinks she's going to lose these children. But God answers this fragment of a prayer. Sometimes he answers prayers we don't even really pray, or at least we don't realize we pray. We're kind of praying them silently. But God answers the prayer where he tells her, and I love the fact that he tells her this, like it's not left to chance. He actually comes right out and says, verse 23, two nations are in your womb. One shall be stronger than the other, but the older shall serve the younger. And that is a vision right there inside of her womb of the two, um, these two nations and the way that the kingdom of God works, where God takes the weak, um, the despised, the lowly, um, and he uses them. Uh, he uses those who are um, poor in spirit, those who are mourned, those, those who are meek. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthian church, not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were noble. But God chooses what is weak in the world, uh, what is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing, to annihilate and to bring to nothing things that are. Anything boastful or haughty or lifted up uh, will be brought low. That's not the way God operates. So God is telling Rebecca, Rebecca, I know how anxious you are. I know how vulnerable you are. But I am bringing a kingdom through you that values the broken, the bruised, and the crushed. That's what he's telling Rebecca. And verse 23 is the key of the whole passage. The older will serve the younger. That's not because he hates Esau. That's because God's heart always is always going out to those in greatest need. Um, He has this disposition when he sees pain and someone hurting, his heart just rushes right to that person. So that's why he says the older will serve the younger. In the ancient world, this was like the communist manifesto, just completely flipped things upside down because the law of primogenitor, what they called it, was that the older one would get everything and the second one would get nothing. That's still done in some cultures today, but this very important part of society was that the first one got everything, the second one got nothing, and God flips it over and he says, Jacob, I choose you, and I will change your name to Israel, and you will be the father of my people. And my kingdom is going to be an upside-down kingdom because I'm going to turn the world upside down. You know, Esau looks like the great nation. He's the firstborn He's the stronger one. He's the hunter. Jacob is quiet. He's a foodie. He's a mama's boy. He's cooking in a tent. But God says, I'm going to choose Jacob. I'm going to bless the world through weakness. You know, Isaac says, Esau's my favorite. Esau says, I'm the firstborn. I get everything. I'm stronger. But God says, um, through Mary, the mother Mary, also an at-risk pregnancy, Luke 152, God says, I cast down the mighty from their thrones, and I exalt those of humble estate." That's the way the kingdom works. He casts down the mighty and he exalts the humble. He always does that. God is still doing that today all over the world. You know, the the empire we live in that is so stratified, so hierarchical, a meritocracy, always likes the well-adjusted, the highly functioning families, the healthy, the clean, the disciplined, the beautiful, successful, rich, all those things. Just like the Pharisees did. Just like religions always do. And God says, I'm not impressed with that. I'm, I'm not impressed by that. Um. I did not call to come the righteous, to call them the righteous, to call sinners. I'm not here for the healthy, but for the sick. Um, Romans 9.10 quotes this passage, and it says, Paul writes, uh, God chose Jacob over Esau while they were still in the womb, 
Not because of their virtue, because they had not done anything good or bad. They're in the womb. But because of God's calling, as it is written, the older will serve the younger. And so this is Paul's way of saying the, the biggest reversal of all is that God just chooses, because he just chooses, he chooses those who are helpless sinners and he redeems them. That's the whole point of Romans 9, is that it doesn't, has nothing to do with us. Your salvation, if you're a believer, has nothing to do with your goodness at all. Before they were born, while they were in the womb, before they had done nothing good or bad, God just says, I am going to show favor to this one, to the weak one. Not Esau, but Jacob. And so my application for that is that, is that the, the darkest part of your story is going to become your most luminous spiritual gift. Um, I have found that to be true in my life. Um, I believe that you're, I, I believe that this, you know, we all believe in, in the gifts of the Spirit. If you've been around Christian circles very long, you know about, we all have a gift. We all have some spiritual gift. And I believe that's true. But here's what I believe about what that spiritual gift is. I think your spiritual gift is the, uh, the, the greatest pain you've ever been through. And I'm sorry to say you haven't been there yet, probably. I, I hope, well, I don't know what I hope, but... Uh, I, I bet you have not been there yet. Um, but whatever it is in your past, he takes the greatest pain and he, that will become your spiritual gift when it is redeemed. And, and certainly, you've all been through massive suffering. We all do. And, and the, the teenage years are so hard. I mean, I would not go back and live my teenage years for anything. And so God will take these things that happen to you when you're really young and somehow, through redemption, he will bring about glory and that will be your gift and he will give you to the world as this person has been redeemed. As my counselor always said, Satan will regret everything bad he ever tried to do to you. I think about that line a lot. He will regret everything he ever tried to do to you. So Jacob, the schemer, becomes Israel, the one who blesses the world. Peter, you know, the impulsive disciple who was like blown back and forth here and there. He becomes Cephas, the rock. And then Saul... You know, the xenophobic Pharisee hating Gentiles. He becomes Paul, the little man. That's literally what Paul means, little one, who is the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what God is always doing. He's just flipping our stories upside down. So think about how he's maybe reversing your story. I mean, I, when I was at Wake, I, I did not take classes where they required you to speak in front of class. I was so scared of speaking in public. Um, I hated doing this kind of thing. And so I don't know how he did it, um, but first of all, he saved me. You know, I was an atheist for most of my time here. He first saved me, and then he was like, I want to make you an RA first. That's the first step. Then I'm going to make you a public school teacher. That's a big step. And then I'm going to take you to seminary, and then I'm going to make you a preacher. I'm going to use the stuff that you went through to actually bless the world through you. So I don't know where you felt, you know, invisible or uninteresting or rejected, where you say maybe this pain is too great, but God is doing something. He's doing something with that pain. There is a, um, a famous beach in, in California somewhere, I think it's in Northern California, where they would take the dumpsters from the uh, bars in the city and they would just dump all the broken glass on this beach, it's called Glass Beach. And if you type in Glass Beach uh, on Google and uh, you look at what the beach looks like now, at, over all these many years, the waves have been, uh, these glass beer bottles, these shards have been rubbing up against each other because of the, all of the tumult, all the chaos of the waves. And now if you walk across it, it's like these smooth stones, like rubies and gems and diamonds. And it's through that combination of, of suffering 
and time and God's love and present in your life that he will make you something beautiful out of your pain. Amen? Father, we pray that you would send your spirit and give us hope. Lord, I pray that if there are conversations that we need to have with brothers or sisters or parents, um, I pray that you would give us the grace. I know when I was saved, I knew I had to talk to my dad immediately. And it was really hard. And so just give us, um, Lord, the hope that whatever we're going through, you're there. And it is not wasted. Not one ounce of pain is wasted. Um, you say that um, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. So the affliction, Lord, is preparing the glory. There is no glory without the affliction. There is no resurrection without the cross. And I pray we'd remember that and take heart that uh, when we feel so lost and abandoned that you are right there and you're changing us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.